yeah, like Zach said, what are you guys doing here? It's a beautiful Labor Day weekend, but it's actually really nice to have you here. So um, first off, I know a lot of you already know me, but my name's Brian. Um, during the week, I work as a physician assistant up north in a fairly underserved rural community. And, um, you know, it's kind of interesting doing that job. You realize that medicine is a calling because it's so, um, so draining and so hard, but yet it's so rewarding at the same time. And it really challenges your heart as to why you're doing what you're doing. Um, even early on in my PA career, um, you know, you start out school, you've worked so hard to get into school that everything makes a big difference. You enter in, you do years of training and study in medicine and in science, and you feel like nothing else is going to matter. You feel like you've, you've done all this and you've been trained and you know what you're doing, and you come out with this kind of self-assuredness in the knowledge you've been given. Um, it's kind of intermixed with some fear because you know that there are people around you who have been doing this job you want to do, and they've been doing it for a lot longer than you, and they, they do it better than you, frankly. Pressure. Uh, the, I did fairly well in my didactic year, so it's all the schooling, all the book work, and the second year, they put you into clinical rotations, and the rotation basically is a month long. You have different specialties that you follow, and you walk in sight unseen to these people who you're supposed to impress and you're supposed to do a good job. You're supposed to learn everything you can in a month and come out the other side better for it. Previously to this, I had actually worked in surgery. I did that for about six years as I was getting my undergrad. So I was fairly well versed. I knew most things about surgery, but I had not had any hands-on surgical experience one of the things that happens is they send a resume ahead of you to your preceptor and the preceptor reads all about you on paper and they kind of preform this idea of you in your head in their head so i f show up my first day and we're just about done with our first surgery which as far as i'm concerned you're basically holding retractors for 2 hours and your muscles are aching you're just sitting there shaking waiting for it to be over while the surgeon endlessly barrages you with these medical questions and trying to figure out a way for you to slip up. Um, by the end, evidently, I had impressed him enough to where he said, well, do you know how to suture? Can you sew them up? And I said, yeah, definitely I can. So he hands me the stuff. I thought maybe he would show me one time. Nope, he just hands me the stuff and says, all right, go ahead. I don't know how long it actually took. It seemed like hours, but he basically sat over and watched me fumble miserably and just do just a terrible job. The wound edges were like misaligned and puckered and my sutures were uneven. It's a scar that you would not want to wake up with, especially knowing the student had done it. So <laughs> he eventually had had enough and he yanked the tools out of my hand, cut them all out, fixed my mistakes, and I kind of knew right then, like I had been found out. A little while later, he pulled me aside and basically reamed me and told me, this is not the place for your ego. This is not the time for you to not admit you can't do something. This is about the patient in there. 
And it kind of stuck with me. In fact, it stuck with me because you know things are bad when a surgeon is lecturing you on ego. It's got to be pretty bad if, you're, <laughs> if they can recognize that in you. Um, but you know what? He was right. He was. And, and that's kind of stuck with me. The heart condition, I think, I thought, not only that I was good enough, but I thought that I was humble enough to know my limits, and I clearly had deceived myself. So, before we get started, let's pray. God, I thank you so much for your word. I thank you for blessing us. I thank you for loving us and getting down to the dirty, nitty-gritty of our heart. Lord, I pray that you would till the soil, that you would make this ground, that we can receive your word, and that we would be changed and the better for it. Help us to honestly open up to you and to be transformed, to be more like your son, to reach this hurting world, God. Pray that anything that's not of you today would fall away and that your gospel would persist. In your wonderful name, Lord Jesus, amen. So, verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came him as he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? It was pretty common in Jewish, uh, Jewish culture to debate in public. Actually, it was kind of a spectator sport. So this would have not been anything uncommon to the people watching. And the religious leaders, frankly, were very, very good at it. It was almost a game. It was almost enjoyable to them. But I think even more than that, they had heard about Jesus of Nazareth, this country boy from the northern country, uh, northern cities, performing miracles and basically flipping the script on what gave them power, and they wanted to challenge him. They wanted to try and incriminate him and gather evidence against him so that they could ultimately do away with him. The things that they're referring to when they say, Who, why are you doing these things? That's the table flipping and the allowing the outcasts and the marginalized to worship him like we just saw last week. Obviously, we know that this is unheard of and scandalous, but more than that, he would not have had the authority to allow or to do these things unless he was the Messiah. So in effect, what he's doing is he's boldly acting like the Messiah. He's, he's letting his actions speak louder than his words. He's going and doing what needs to be done, what he feels like has to be done, and he doesn't seem to care what the, the culture of the time thinks about it. Essentially, the elders are looking at this and saying, well, if he is doing this, then he is saying he has more authority than us. And in that time, they, they had basic, they had complete authority. So they come at him with these questions. They come at him to try and trap him. And I think it's, just as a little aside, I think it is kind of interesting. They're using their God-given gifts of intellect and debate to try and incriminate and to try and trap God's only son. It kind of foreshadows a little bit what I'm going to get into, that their hearts are already too hard to, to hear this message. So verse 24, Jesus answered them, I will also ask you one question, and if you answer it for me, then I will tell you by what authority I do these things. Did John's baptism come from heaven, or was it human origin? This is Jesus' way 
He's not just playing coy, but this is Jesus' way of boldly answering the, answer, or the, the question of, yes, I am the Messiah. But he's answering it in such a way that the people that have a heart condition to receive the gospel already recognize, oh my word, he is saying this. He's not incriminating himself by overtly saying, he's not allowing the Pharisees to gather, in, uh, to gather evidence against him to accuse him. It's not time for him to be crucified yet, so he's playing a little close to the vest on this one. Um, it kind of, it also really outlies that the Pharisees don't even understand what the question is, so they don't have the heart to receive it. And again, another aside, I do think it's kind of funny how when you have true authority, you don't have to stop and answer for it. You just own it. You have the time, you have the ability to actually get to the heart of the matter. Jesus isn't caught up in what the, the religious leaders are trying to accuse him of. He doesn't worry about trying to explain himself. He challenges their heart, and he, he displays it for everyone to see. They discussed it amongst themselves. Well, if we say from heaven, he will say to us, then why didn't you believe him? But if we say of human origin, we're afraid of the crowd because everyone considers John to be a prophet. So they answered, we don't know. And he said to them, neither will I tell you by what authority I do these things. The crowd referred to as probably fairly sizable given his reputation coming in, given what he did yesterday. If you can imagine in our culture, a little bit of infighting on Instagram, everybody's going to want to see the showdown. So people are probably gathered around. It's probably a fairly good-sized crowd. Um, the Pharisees are put on the spot and kind of have this, this turned on, this, the table's turned on them, so to speak. They have a no-win question. And of course, their answer further confirms that they don't even have the heart to receive. They're so busy worried about saving face and retaining their pride, they can't even grasp the beautiful truth of what's sitting before them. If they truly knew who Jesus was, would they even have to ask that question? It would be kind of a moot point. They would say, well, this is the mistake. They would repent. No, they come at him demanding to know. They know that if they admit the legitimacy of John's ministry, when Jesus asks, was it of the baptism, was it of human or was it of heaven? They also are being directly called out for their sins, which John has done multiple times before. They're in effect validating their guilt and that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the Messiah that's to come, which obviously goes against their power, their hold on the society. I also think it's really interesting because, you know, they call back, they call into question John's uh, baptism. Of course, they probably weren't there, but if you read about it in Matthew 3.16, the heavens literally opened up, the Holy Spirit came down the dove, and a voice came out and said, this is my son in whom I will please. I don't think that you can really argue that. Like, it can't get more clear. Yet they still say, I don't know. 
Uh, C.S. Lewis had a great quote from his book, Mere Christianity. Pride is spiritual cancer. It eats up the very possibility of love, contentment, or even common sense. And clearly, we're missing some common sense here. So he's put the, the Pharisees in their place. He's stopped their attack on him. He's effectively just shut them down, and everybody's seen it. They're probably still reeling from this interplay. But what does he do? He hammers the point home just a little bit more with the parable of the two sons. What do you think? A man has two sons. He went to the first and said, my son, go to work in the vineyard today. And the son answered, I do not want to. But later he changed his mind and went. Then the man went to the other and said the same thing. I will, sir, he answered, but he didn't go. Which of the two did his father's will? They said the first. Jesus said to them, truly, I tell you, tax collectors and prostitutes are entering the kingdom of God before you. For John came to you in the way of righteousness, and you didn't believe him. Tax collectors and prostitutes did believe him, but you, when you saw it, didn't even change your minds and then believe him. So he's essentially illustrating what he was leading up to in the first section, where there's a huge difference between empty words without action and obedience and humility in action. The Pharisees claim to be righteous, faithfully tithing, keeping the Sabbath, living perfectly within the letter of the law on the outside. But on the inside, they were self-serving, they were prideful. They abused and exploited and marginalized the people who were closest to God's heart, the people that were relying on them. They used their religious authority and they flexed their muscles and kept everybody else oppressed instead of communicating God's heart. It reminds me a little bit of the parable in Matthew of the two wise men who built a house in the sand and a house on the rock. And Jesus directly points to the source of their wisdom being hearing the word and action through it. One heard the word and went on doing what he was doing and his house was built on the sand and it crumbled with a terrible crash. The other heard and built his house on the rock and was able to withstand the, the storms of life. John proclaimed, God, John proclaimed God's grace and righteousness. The tax collectors and the sinners, just like the first son, yeah, they weren't living the way they were supposed to, but they heard it and they repented. They changed their minds and they did God's will. They repented of their disobedience and they had hearts of humility. The Pharisees heard and they discounted John. Most likely because of their pride and their superiority, it threatened the way things were going. They can't have that and so they can't let anything in. But even as they watch these outcasts and these marginalized receive the grace, receive the new covenant, they did nothing. They stood back and they just held down even more. They reacted and they accused John. They accused Jesus. 
Again, I go back to they just didn't even have the heart. The pride had hardened the ground in there to harden the ground in there so much they couldn't receive the message. The question I was having run through my mind as I'm reading this, and as I'm sitting there judging the Pharisees, it really hit me hard, and I wondered, how often does my heart deceive me? How often am I blinded by my own self-assuredness and my pride, like I had talked about earlier with suturing? I thought I was doing well. I thought I was good. But it takes a challenge to really show that we're not, we're not there. I'm not there. You know, how often are we blinded by our own self-assuredness and pride? How many areas of my heart am I like the religious elders? I'd like to say that I identify with the prostitutes and tax collectors, that I'm the victim who humbly receives God. But so often I'm challenged and left wondering, have I really submitted my heart to God? Have I really allowed him to rule over me and to change me? After all, Jeremiah says it in a pretty well-known scripture that is in seven, uh, chapter 17, verses 9 and 10. The heart is more deceitful than anything else and incurable. Who can understand it? I, the Lord, examine the mind and I test the heart to give to each according to his way, according to what his actions deserve. It's amazing how we get so stuck in an idea. We get so stuck in a way that we know what we want and we, we get what we want, but we, or we get what we think we want, but it doesn't ultimately help us. And we are still either too prideful or too fooled by what we think to, to let it go. And there's this, there's this awesome viral video a couple years ago, this little boy eating an onion. And the backstory was that this told his mom, I want that apple. And the mom said, that's not an apple, honey, that's an onion. Badgered her and badgered her and badgered her. Eventually she just gave in and she handed him the onion Instead of taking the first bite and going, oh my gosh, this is an onion, mom's right. No. The just tears pouring out of his eyes, snot running down his face. Can he barely breathe? And he's just going to town on this onion. He will not give it up. You know that better for you. I know what you want. Let me give it to you. But no, he can't let it go. It's so often I know the way that God feels about me. He knows what I need instead of what I want. But I won't let it go. I can't even grasp his goodness. I can't even let go of what I think I want long enough to have him bless me with what he truly has in store. Not just for me, but for my family and for the community around me. He says things like, trust me. Trust me with your finances. Be generous. Tithe. Trust me. Obey me in your relationship. 
bless those who hurt you. And it seems like every single time that he challenges me in these places in my heart, my knee-jerk reaction, the first thing I think of, the first place I go, is by what authority are you doing these things? Who gave you this authority? So what's the antidote? It's nearly impossible to fix the problem that we're blind to, even if we know it exists. John Mark Comer, who's a pastor of a church in Portland, has a great saying that that basically goes to the effect of, your system is perfectly designed to get the output that you're getting. You've heard it said that keep doing the same thing, you'll keep getting the same thing. So we've got to look outside of ourselves. If we're too blind to see a problem, how can we fix it? Even Paul, that the, the, the type of the, te- the New Testament talks about in Romans, I do not understand what I am doing because I do not practice what I want to do, but I do what I hate. It gives me a lot of comfort if Paul is still having the same problems after his amazing experience and ultimately knowing what his life is doing, I guess there's hope for me. The only way that I can see and the only way that the scriptures talk about to overcome this is submission. Submission to God's authority. Willful, intentional, humble submission. It's knowing that Without him, our hearts are bent towards destruction. It's inviting him into my deepest, darkest recesses, the places that I feel most confident, the places that are the most reactive and tender, and allowing him to rid me of anything that's harmful to me or to those around me. It's trusting his goodness that in that process that he won't leave me or forsake me. It's understanding that he's not doing this destructively. He may be tearing down strongholds, but he's only doing it so he can rebuild better. It's leaning into his love. So, as I invite Jackson to come back up here, We're going to move in this time of communion. I just really want to encourage you to take heart in the love that Christ has for you and the things that he has for you, even if you can't comprehend them, even if I don't comprehend what he's doing in my life. The encouragement is there that he loves us and he is for us, that he has good for us. I think David sums it up best in Psalm 139 at the very end when he says, Search me, God. Know my heart. Test me and know my concerns. See if there is any offensive way in me and lead me in the everlasting way.
You've been listening to the Revelation Church Coeur d'Alene podcast. Learn more about Revelation Church at revelationcda.com.